Hi, Victoria. So nice to see you here. Thank you. Hi, Katarina. So nice to be here, too. How are you feeling? I'm feeling a lot better, thanks. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah, me too. Not perfect, but a million, zillion times better than before. Hi, Vincent. How are you today? Ooh, Vincent, your PTR is beautiful. Thank you so much. It's actually one of my photos and NFT of mine. I don't seek to make NFTs like the rest of everyone. Um, I like making one-offs that, you know, have inherent value themselves and uh, the utility comes with having it. But I, only, I, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I only went into the Web 3.0 space as an exposure campaign to show that I can enter a realm of business in which I hadn't operated in before and create wakes. I didn't know they were going to be small, large, what, but uh, 400,000 NFT creators, I guess, dropped out, and there's only roughly 15,000 that are still even bothering because uh, they're the only ones still um, potentially selling. I have yet to even price mine yet. Well, um, that's great. Hi, Leo. Welcome to the yeah. room. Welcome to Clubhouse. We're glad to have you here. How's your day? Hi, can you can you hear me? Barely. Yeah, I, I can hear you well. Um, but Vincent can't. I don't know. Maybe try again. Well or barely? <laughs> no. Could be a little clearer, perhaps. I don't know. Sometimes with when people wear headphones um, instead of just using the speaker, it, it gets a little bit uh, muffled. So. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not wearing any headphones or anything. It's just, it's just my Mac. So I'll oh. just try to be louder, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that helps a lot. That helps a, yeah. a lot. Thank you. Hello, John. Hi, everybody. Happy afternoon, evening. Hi, John. Meet Leo, our guest speaker here today. I'm, um, I'm in the matrix. Sorry, I'll just be in listen mode till I get out of the matrix. You're no longer quantum entangled. We will start in around. It's his name. Eight so, um, so um, yeah. In the meantime, are you welcome to? I shared the paper link uh, in the chat. Um, you welcome everyone to to check it out, and then we have the presentation pinned on top of the room um, that we will go through. Um, you know, Leo will go through it. Um, in a little bit, but uh, we start on top of the hour. So yeah, thank you for being here and very excited. Thank you, Leo, for coming here in Clubhouse and going through all the trouble. We really appreciate it. Thank you, thank you for having me. I mean, this is this is quite interesting. I just 
I just installed the uh, uh, club club desk, I guess, today, and so I'm still getting, uh, you know, acquainted and familiar with the environment, and yeah. So, so I have plenty of slides. I mean, the what is typically the um, the format of this uh, these meetings? Do you want me to kind of briefly talk about the material? Um, mostly leave time for discussion. Uh, do you want me to go into the details? Um, it's really um how much you you know how much time you have. I would leave enough time for questions. Um, but you know we 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 have time yeah. for for details. But it's more about how much time you have to later then still answer questions because that's a kind of nice thing about this platform that uh, people can interact with you. Um, so maybe in between, something in between, because I don't know what time it is for you, how much time you have uh, to be here. So, so it depends more on that, like on your time. Yeah, so it's it's. Uh, I'm uh, I'm in Texas time, so it's eight, almost eight p.m. And um, I mean, I have, you know, I have time, but well, let's see, let's see. I'll 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 give you an overview and uh, just the very basics of the technology, and depending on on the interest and questions, we may go and dive deeper. And of course, I'm available at the later stage to to discuss. Yeah, sounds perfect. Thank you. Yeah, I was gonna say agree. It's it's really your your space, Leo, and we're hoping that if people want clarification or you bring up you know a point that somebody wants to discuss with you, then maybe we'd have time for that. It's really a space for you to to just develop your topic um, in a way that makes you feel like you are able to share the way you want to share and share what you want to share as well. So we can, it can really evolve organically and up to you. Okay, thank you. And we will lead a Q&A, so you, you don't need to worry about anything like that. And sometimes guests will put a question for you in the room chat. Um, that you can see and, and we can share with you also. So you don't need to worry about that either. And just um, have a great time sharing your work. Sounds good. All right. Um, well, I have uh, I have some stuff, some work of mine that I've been working on for quite some time. Uh, it's an e-learning platform in which um, maybe uh, one of the more feature-rich and affordable in the world, of which I, the next moves are to uh, <clears throat> integrate them with several other MVPs I have one of which you can feed it a markdown file or textbook and it will spit out a curriculum homework 
quizzes and tests. Um, another <coughs> module I'll be adding is one of my favorites of all of my MVPs. Uh, I didn't create it, it was given to me, but uh, I'm doing an adaptation to it, and it's a ASL to audible speech and written text in real time. It's absolutely wonderful. And um, this is all for, as I said, education. And also, well, the underlying principle is um, to give, well, prodigious individuals the attention they deserve, not to leave out people who aren't of uh, prodigious nature, rather, but those who do and excel with no means, or I mean, no, not no means, but rather no other means other than the pursuit of knowledge and their capability to process it. I, I find that's the reason why we don't produce Einsteins and Galileos and Da Vinci's anymore, because back in the day, we used, individuals were paid to very much train these prodigies so they could, you know, grow to be the next leaders. We're not really doing that anymore. Like, uh, I just got in a room, it was very much an argument. I All I'd ask was, uh, do you, does anyone see, have any role models these days? And I really was asking, I wasn't trying to prove a point or anything. And someone said Elon Musk and then it broke out into a very much of an argument. And, um, it might have sounded like I was against Elon, only because I'm also of the ASD. And um, I've been through many experiences he has. Um, we both have lots of financial background. Uh, I had no relationship with our father, um, very close with our mother. Um, very much have alienated the whole, our whole lives and just uh, we've gone. Um, Vincent, excuse me, excuse me, Vincent, I'm sorry, this is, I'm, this would be great for you to open up a room and, and just share all about this right now. We're just about to start the room. So instead of cutting you off later, I'm going to ask you to pause that right now and maybe consider having your own room where you can have this type of discussion. And I'd like to hand the mic over to Katarina so she can start the room and introduce our guest and get things going. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, yeah, this is like a guest speaker invitation room. So I know we also do open discussion rooms, but yeah, let's just start. It's 9 p.m. EST. So uh, thank you everyone for coming. And of course, um, welcome everyone to Science Society and a special uh, welcome um, to uh, Dr. Uh, Leo Blaris. And um, before we start, let me introduce you to the audience so uh, people can get to know you a little bit. And um, yeah, and then uh, usually Victoria asks a couple of interview questions, if that's okay with you. And then, uh, and then it's time for your presentation. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, that's absolutely fine. Um, so, okay, um, then, um, yeah, Dr. Leonidas Blaris, he's at the University of Texas, Dallas, and um, 
He um, is a Cecile H. and Ida Green Chair in Systems Biology Science and a professor with the Bioengineering Department of the University of Texas at Dallas. And um, be, um, before um, he joined UTD, he was a postdoc at the FAS Center for Systems Biology at Harvard University. And uh, he did his PhD in electrical engineering at Lehigh uh, University in 2006. I hope I said that right, <laughs> the university name. And he received a diploma in electrical and computer engineering uh, from Aristotle University of Thessaloniki, Greece. And he was awarded the Christine uh, Mirzai. Mietzayan Science and Technology Policy Graduate Fellowship from the National Academy of Science. And he served with the Board of Mathematical Science and the Applications. And um, he um, won different awards um, throughout his career. Um, and uh, he is um, focused on systems biology, mammalian synthetic biology, and genome editing. And yeah, yeah, he has received support for his work from NIH and NSF and the NSF Career Award. We are very honored to have you here today. Uh, thank you for coming. And uh, Victoria uh, goes ahead with the interview. Thank you. Thank you, Katharina. Leo, that was really fantastic to hear about your work. And, and we are so honored to have you here with us in Science Society today. So thank you. Thank you very much for coming and downloading the app and all that. So my question is just to give the audience a little bit of a background of the guest speaker, which tonight is you. And, and my question is, if you can think back through your life, and consider when you might have felt a special connection to science. And I don't really mean as a career, but something that you noticed that you felt an interest in. And, and if you can, then if you could tell us a little bit about that moment or event or person, and that could be in childhood or adolescence, really any time during your life. Um. Yep, thank you. Thank you for the uh, kind introduction, Katerina. And um, uh, it's my it's my pleasure to to be here. Um, uh, hopefully, we'll have a good discussion. Um, so, Victoria, my first my first uh, I guess this is a nice nice question. I um, I grew up in. A, um, Could you move a little closer to your microphone? Your voice is kind of soft. Yeah, so that's, is this a bit better? Yes. Okay, thank you. So I, um, um, so about my trajectory, let me start first with this. I, um, I as you, as you see, I moved from um, engineering, from electrical engineering to uh, more molecular and cell biology uh, at some point uh, while I was finishing my PhD. Uh, my uh, postdoc experience essentially was uh, my first exposure to uh, wet lab work. 
um, I was um, hired as a postdoctoral scientist at the Center for Systems Biology at Harvard to apply engineering and control theory principles in, uh, in cells. So they were interested in looking at uh, biological pathways and uh, using theory and knowledge that we have from uh, uh, network theory, from control theory to apply sophisticated control. So uh, in my career, I've uh, always kind of stayed at that interface uh, between uh, uh, sciences. So I'm really I find biology fascinating, uh, but at the same time, I'm an engineer, so I look for ways to uh, modify cells or build new technologies, and to essentially, I try to provide solutions. Now, I grew up in a, in a, in a uh, say, a, a, a academic uh, family. My my father was a physicist and my mother a mathematician in, in Greece, that is. And um, I, I don't know exactly where my first exposure to, you know, uh, I guess my first initial kind of what triggered my interest in the, in the sciences. But I, I remember my father always used to try to model simple things with, with simple mathematical models. And I'm talking about, you know, your, your relationships to people, so he would just uh, uh, write a simple mathematical model that uh, kind of captures the energy as the relationship and equates it to some interaction. Uh, so simple things like that kind of inspired me, and uh, and and then I uh, I, I guess it, it was a. Um, you know, they said that, you know, from a physicist and a mathematician, you can become an engineer, I guess, and I, I, I took that path, essentially. Um, yeah, so, I can't pinpoint it exactly, but I guess it was mostly my interactions with my father. Thank you so much. That was, that was a really wonderful um talk about really about your work and your and your early life with science and so I'm I'm hearing it sounds like your father was was instrumental in expressing the world to you through mathematical principles in a way so it was another form of communication that you were shown you know like another language exactly. yeah, yeah. So ways to model simple interactions simple decisions um, um, you know, just uh, every action as a reaction, things like that. So basic physics principles. What a gift! <laughs> it really, it, it really is. What it, what a gift! Because um, you know, now we get to hear about your work today. But that was the path that your father um, sort of opened for you with that with that form of mathematical communication with that modeling. And, you know, everyone has, has their unique connection and, and we really do appreciate hearing, hearing from everyone because they are, they are all so different, you know, and sometimes we may resonate with them and other times it just leads us to understand how important it is to lead by example. Um, you know, with young people and anybody around us, you never know who's learning from you. But also, you know, you mentioned that 
the interdisciplinary nature of things and yeah. how, yeah, how important yeah, I, that is. I, I try to do the same in my, in my, uh, you know, in my classroom. So I, I try to move beyond exactly what I'm teaching to my students and uh, talk about, uh, you know, the philosophy of things and potentially, you know, even, even, even poetry. And so how everything is connected in a, in a, in a way. So there are general principles that describe uh, phenomena in, uh, that you can use and take from one domain and move it to another domain with certain approximations, with certain you know, freedoms, of course. Sure. I hope that that, that example will um, be imprinted on the people who work with you. And, and it's always my hope that, that conventional schooling will be more like that someday and not regimented into um, you know, artificially imposed subjects. But I would like to get out of your way now and pass you the mic for, um, for you to go into your talk. And we've already discussed that however you'd like the Q&A to be driving your discussion or following your discussion, that's up to you. And we have your PDF pinned at the top so people can follow along and you can take us through it. And we're just really looking forward to hearing about your work. So thank you so much. And the mic is yours. Okay, thank you again. So um, I, I said the, that the, um, the link of the presentation, so I'll just go through a couple of the slides. And um, at minimum, what I'd like to do is uh, explain what physical and clonable functions is, how it, it can be used um, today, and, um, and talk a little bit about CRISPR. Um, um, and discuss basically how this technology can help some can help solve some really important problems that we have. So um, this is work that started um, a couple of years ago with uh, discussions from with uh, another faculty member. Uh, here in, in the university, uh, this the colleague, this colleague of mine, Dr. Macris, is an expert in in uh, security uh, and security related applications for um, in the semiconductor industry. And so we we um, we discussed about uh, technologies in the semiconductor industry that. Uh, could potentially be um, transferred in a way, or uh, we could use inspiration from such technologies in, to solve problems in, in biology. So um, if you go to the second slide, uh, it contains a very basic uh, definition of uh, physical and clonable functions. So physical and clonable functions or PAFs are a physical entity, something physical, something manufactured, something that it's built, that provides a measurable output. It's something that you can quantify and then you can use this measurement, this data that you, you get from that physical entity is a unique, 
an irreproducible identifier for the artifact or whatever device or whatever host it contains the path. So this is this can be quite complex. So I'd like to move slowly here and uh, try to help you understand this, the concept of a path uh, as much as possible. So if you go to the next slide, paths are popularized, there is, they were invented in the semiconductor industry. So what happens in the semiconductor industry is you, the, the, the companies have they build chips, they build, um, um, they build molecular gates in individual chips in using, using uh, wafers. So these are, these are silicon plates and in these, uh, in these wafers they print and they build uh, using semiconductor manufacturing processes thousands of, again, chips on the same wafer. Now, if you zoom in, let's, let's assume for a second that you have a wafer that has two chips built, right? Obviously, this is not true. You have thousands, but let's assume that we have two. Then you zoom in in these two and you look at two gates, uh, the silicon gates in these chips. These are illustrated here on this, um, on this uh, cartoon that I have. Now, because of variations in the manufacturing process, and these have to do with uh, the doping, the position, photolithography, etching, anything that has to do with actually physically manipulating the material that uh, forms a gate, a silicon semiconductor-based uh, gate, there are small differences in these gates, small minute differences. You see this, uh, for example, here you have this so-called depletion region that is slightly different between the two figures. Now, the result is that at a high level, the gates behave approximately the same. So the kind of on-off behavior, let's say, when you apply some signal, the response is approximately the same, but it's not exactly the same. And that is because of the stochasticity in manufacturing these chips. So that is a that is a key concept, and the the uh, um, groups in the semiconductor industry realize that potentially, when you combine these gates in a in a chip, you may be able to get some information that is unique for the particular chip. You may be able to excite, put a specific input, a specific voltage to the chip and obtain a measurement which is unique, specific to the particular chip. So the two chips that I mentioned in the beginning so that are next to each other will be level, their on-off behavior will be the but under specific input conditions, they, they will give you a unique output. So if you go back to the uh, previous slide, a path is a physical entity 
right? So it's a, it's a, something that is manufactured, which provides a measurable output. So that manufactured gate, you can apply an input signal and get an output measurement that is a unique, that is, to the two chips that I mentioned before are different. They, they, keep, they provide, you can get a, a different readout. And irreproducible, that is also key, you cannot build that chip again because it, the way that it was built, it was, it was a process, it was a result of the stochasticity in the manufacturing process. So these small differences in the, in the, in the individual gates resulted into this irreproducibility. So moving on to the fourth slide, puffs have three, there are three criteria for puffs. One is that they are robust. So once you build a puff, you can provide the chip to a customer. The customer can perform the measurement on the puff and will get the same signature, right? So the, the signature, the readout from the puff does not degrade. It's unique, that means that you cannot rebuild it, replicate it. If you have a thousand chips on the same wafer, each one is different enough, and you can then sell them individually to a customer, and the customer will be able to read out, recognize the puff, but they will not be able to build it. Um, the unclonable part is, yeah, so the unclonability is the last bit, which is important. Again, once a customer has a particular chip, they cannot replicate it. They cannot build a chip with the same path. Again, it's impossible because of the stochasticity of the process. Um, so why is this important? In the semiconductor industry, it has become extremely important because um, um, companies use these paths and chips that they manufacture for so-called provenance attestation. So they validate that the chips were manufactured in a specific uh, facility. So that is extremely important because um, the um, because there is the, because of potential um, stealing of uh, IP for uh, verifying that the chip was again manufactured by um, a specific facilities is extremely. It can be extremely important, right? Um, right now, there is uh, um, there is interest in um, in the electronics and hardware in terms of hardware security, and it's uh, it's been uh, it it is extensively used. Uh, I'm I'm trying to. Um, locate the exact number. I don't want to quote, but it's it's something that in in semiconductors now has become that fingerprint that is introduced in the manufacturing process has become uh, a commonplace. Let's say. So now, if you move to the next slide, what uh, we um, what we identified an, an opportunity uh, that. Uh, Potentially, the uh, similar technology could help is with um, with uh, cell lines, with the use of cell lines, and with uh, cell line engineering. So, cell lines are um, extensively 
used today in, in labs, um, the, the use alliance for um, uh, studying a disease, for um, studying biology, for um, disease modeling, the cell lines that are used for uh, biomanufacturing, uh, cell lines that are used in um, um, you know bio reactor bioreactors for uh, production of valuable compounds, uh, for metabolic engineering, for production of uh, antibodies, uh, the, the the industry for uh, cell lines is um, is about twenty billion dollars today, and it's expected to grow to, to more than double in a few years. Something that is driving the developments in um, in cell engineering is the ability to perform uh, sophisticated edits. So you perform genome editing using CRISPR and um, uh, introduce mutations, modifications, pathway changes um, at will, essentially. And um, again, do use, use, use the cell lines for a number of biomedical applications either a two-dimensional or uh, 3D organoids and so on. So um, you can imagine that um, uh, we could, we are at a point right now where we can study, we can use cell lines for personalized medicine. So we can basically isolate cells from uh, patients and perform uh, um, you, uh, perform basically um, do IPS cloning and move from fibroblasts to specific tissue or we can start from a baseline cell line and introduce mutations that are present in a certain uh, in a certain patient and then use these modified cell lines for uh, disease modeling. Now there are tens of companies right now that sell modified cell lines and we believe that it is in their best interest that the cell lines that they built are somehow uh, secured so that you can introduce a unique ID that verifies that the cell line is genuine and that it's been has passed quality control from the company and that you can indeed use it. That is from the customer side. So the customer will benefit from having that information. The companies on the other side are interested in selling a single cell line to a single customer, customer and verifying that transaction. Right? It's commonplace nowadays that you cell lines are basically shared among um, labs and um, in universities, so there's, there's, so there's essentially now having a unique identifier will give companies the opportunity to um, cover, to, to enforce their IP essentially. So if a company builds a particular mutant uh, and uh, spends resources for it, then they can sell that individual cell line to individual customer and perform provenance attestation. So the paradigm is in 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 uh, slide number six. So we think that if you see on the top left side, you have a manufacturing and distribution protocol where a company builds 
has a valuable cell line. And what it does, it performs uh, that inserts the path. And again, I have not talked yet about how we do that, but bear with me. So you have a cell line and you, in one step, you introduce, um, you, you introduce a path. So you produce, let's say in one step, 10 or 100 uh, clones that carry different paths. So these in individual clones can be uh, sold to customers and the customers then by sequencing a particular location in the genome where the path uh, rests can validate, can perform uh, provenance attestation. So I'll, um, I'll repeat that the, the um, concept of the path, the path requires three criteria. This is uh, the robustness, uniqueness, and unclonability. In this paradigm, a robustness means that when a company builds a puffed cell line, so it has a single cell line with a puff, when it gives that, that cell line to a customer, the customer performs the, the readout from the cell line, the sequencing of a particular location, and this is, this is simple uh, amplicon sequencing. It's nothing too expensive or uh, time-consuming. Um, and so with that sequencing, then, the information that the customer gets gets should be the same that you you have from the in your database. So that is the robustness. So the the signature then it's maintained. Uniqueness means that two clones, two path cell lines that you've built will not have the same signature. So they are unique. They're different to each other. Unclonable means that any customer cannot take the original wild type cell line and introduce a path at will. It'll be impossible for a customer to actually build a path and um, and um, and kind of violate the, the uh, any IP. So now how did we use how did we build the paths? So we we used CRISPR and we used um, a couple of tricks, a couple of uh, um, um, two-step two process, let's say. So the, um, I don't know if I, if I need to go into what CRISPR is, but uh, essentially if you go to slide number seven, you must have seen something, some, something on the news, something in the science journal um, about um, CRISPR. It's a it's a genome editing technology that has um, revolutionized the genome editing field. So the field is not new. It's uh, several uh, decades old, but it's only with the discovery of CRISPR uh, that has really um, that things have really accelerated, and it's because of the ease of use and the efficiency of the technology. So before CRISPR, the, the researchers, including myself, we used um, proteins, engineered proteins that were not as easy to build and did not work as well. Uh, so these were zinc fingers or tiles. But anyway, so with CRISPR, things have simplified significantly in terms of genome editing. You can go inside cells and perform individual single nucleotide edits 
the technology resulted into the Nobel Prize last year of medicine for uh, the group from Berkeley um, and Munich, the two ladies. And uh, obviously there's Feng Chang from MIT that led a million uh, developments. So if you go to slide number 11, essentially the technology relies on two two components. So you have a protein, uh, CRISPR-associated protein, which we call here Cas9, which is that gray, gray kind of uh, bulb. And uh, you have a guide RNA, that gRNA, which is the uh, uh, an RNA sequence that associates with Cas9, with a protein. It creates a complex. And you can use that guide to direct the protein into any location in the genome. You direct the protein to any location in the genome by selecting that 20 nucleotide target sequence. It's the red highlighted with red sequence. So these 20 nucleotides, all you have to do is select them so that they're complementary to a target, to a desired target in the genome. So if you have um, a location in the genome that you want to edit, all you have to do is select these 20 nucleotides and then um, clone them within that guide RNA structure, which contains a particular, um, it's, a, it's a special sequence, so it contains a hairpin that is then recognized by the Cas9. Now, when these two come together, they, they, they essentially very efficiently find the target and they can introduce uh, a cut. So they can introduce a double-stranded break in that particular location. So that is, that works quite efficiently. Uh, I mean, it obviously has its, its, uh, its issues, but it's, it's, it works quite well. Now, once you cut, uh, there is... Uh, there are, uh, the cell will try to correct the, the damage. And there are uh, ways that you can um, intervene, that you can hijack this process and insert new information, or you can let the cell fix the error, fix the damage by itself. And that process, when the cell fixes the damage by itself, it's it is stochastic. It is called non-homologous and joint repair. And so if you go to slide number 12, which is the next slide, it shows the result of that random um, uh, fixing of a, of a cle cleaved sequence. So if you, if you look at this set of sequences, and I'll... Uh, I'll pause here because this is quite important. This is the source of stochasticity that we use to build paths. So if you if you look at the sequence, this is the result after a cut. So before cutting, what we had was the top sequence. The top sequence is the uh, the one that has the blue the blue string of new of, of 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 letters of nucleotides. So that original that cell line. We had thousands of cells on a plate, and then all the cells had that same information. So we built CRISPR 
to attack that particular sequence that it is blue and uh, and uh, and perp and red next to it. So the CRISPR was designed to cut between these two A's, the blue A and the red A. So after we cut, we let the cell fix itself, and then we sequenced the the cell line. And what we got was essentially uh, about 13%, if you see on the left, of the original sequence. This was uncut, basically, cells. Then the next one is 12%, and you'll see that there is a gap there. That gap, essentially, it's after you align the two sequences, you have a gap. It means that this particular 12% of the cells are missing five nucleotides right in the middle. So it's a continuous sequence, but it's missing five nucleotides. The next 10% misses six nucleotides, 9.5% of the cells miss three nucleotides, and it, uh, all of them are at a different location, as you see. So it's random, right? So once you cut in the particular location, you have random deletions. You also have insertions. So you see uh, further down, so the eighth sequence has a G inserted in the, in the position next to the deletion. So you typically have more more than a few insertions. So this is just a particular case that it was mostly deletions. So now what we did, we did a two-step process to introduce the path. And uh, I'll, in the next two slides, I'll basically tell you how we built a path. And then I'll wrap, wrap up my presentation. So the, the next slide, which is slide 13, essentially contains the protocol. So you start with a single cell line, a monoclonal cell line, that is each cell, they're all, they're all the same. The first step is the, is the step of inserting the uh, uh, library of barcodes. So there are, these barcodes are five nucleotide long. In our case, it were five nucleotide long, but they can be uh, longer. Each position in this barcode could be any one of the four letters, so A, G, C, or T. So these all possible combinations of five nucleotides, essentially, right? So we used CRISPR to introduce these barcodes. Um, and this is a, a more sophisticated editing process, which requires uh, some antibiotic selection and, and it's based on homologous recombination. But uh, to, 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 uh, to not, in order not to spend too much time on this, so this is a, a, step, a step that is established in the field. So essentially, after this step, we get a barcoded cell line. So essentially, each cell now contains a unique barcode. So there's basically five nucleotides that are unique. Now, what we did was in the following step, we introduced uh, errors very close to the barcode using the approach that I mentioned just a slide ago, using non-homologous end joint repair. So we cut in the proximity of the barcode, and that introduces indels. Now, when you're done with this process, you get a, a puffed cell line, which contains barcodes and indels in the same, uh, in the same basically, in the same location in the genome. What you do then is you perform amplicon sequencing, deep sequencing of the particular 
location. And then you create a two-dimensional mapping of the barcodes and the intels ranked by frequency. So if you go to slide 15, and that is essentially our path on slide 15, so you'll see that uh, two-dimensional mapping of the barcodes. Barcodes are on the x-axis and the indels are on the y-axis. You see that they're ranked by uh, frequency. Uh, on the top left, you have the most frequent combination. On the bottom right, you have the least frequent combinations. And you see that essentially each one has its own uh, distribution profile, the barcodes and the intels. You see how the intels look like. Now, what is key is that, and this was our hypothesis, and we proved it using three different cell lines and tens of uh, different engineered paths, uh, was that this particular process, this cyclic process into introducing barcodes and then introducing the uh, indels, results into two-dimensional mapping that essentially is a path. What does it mean? If you go to the next slide, if you follow the same process in two different cell lines, you will get a frequency between the intels and the barcodes that is completely different. And you can see these are two paths with the frequencies, and they look qualitatively different. Obviously, we did not stop with just a qualitative step, so we performed uh, quantitative analysis, so we used metrics such as total variation distance or break Curtis distance to uh, calculate the distance between um, two paths. I'll give you one more slide, slide 19, which summarizes, I think, nicely the difference between the uh, paths and also points to the robustness uh, ideas. So if you look on the left side on slide 19, there is a path 11, path 11 FT. So this is the freeze thaw uh, sample. So path 11 is one path, and then the freeze thaw is a sample that, after it was established, it was frozen, shipped to a different lab, thawed, and sequenced. Between these two, as you, as you can see again, qualitatively, the full path, they look very similar. If you zoom in on the top five by five matrix on the top left, you see the individual positions, the frequency of the barcodes and the indels are extremely similar. We also have a path one one R, which is a repeated sample, just the sequencing was repeated, so it was done twice, to account for just sequencing differences. Right? Now, as you see, the, 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 the path is extremely robust. So once you build it, you can ship it to a customer. The customer will sequence it, will get exactly the same information. Now, in contrast, another path that was built is essentially qualitatively and quantitatively, it's different. It's extremely different. So we can safely differentiate between paths. Now, I'll go to slide 23, uh, uh, which is uh, a summary um, and a comparison, essentially, with this um, uh, plot of the 
of our technology with other technologies that are used for saline characterization. So we've shown in a recently published paper that our approach, the protocol that I mentioned with the barcoding and the indel insertion is the only one that produces unique, robust and unclonable signatures. Essentially, I just spoke about the robustness. You saw an example, it was just between the two cell lines of the uniqueness, unclonable because one cannot really build the cell line, will a cell line that carries the particular frequencies that is, is as close to impossible uh, as it can be. Um, now, if you compare, let's say, other technologies that are used for cell line characterization, karyotyping or SNP mapping or just barcoding, none of these technologies can satisfy all the three PATH criteria. So I'll give you an example, SNP mapping. So you can say that, uh, let's say you have a cell line that carries um, a set of mutations, different mutations in the genome. So the cell line, you can ship it to a customer and the customer can perform whole genome sequencing. And indeed, that the, the result will be that he will get a particular SNP. So that this is, it satisfies the robustness criteria. Additionally, you could potentially say that it is unclonable, right? Because the, the, if the cell line has tens of mutations, then it will be close to impossible to actually introduce them one by one, right? So two of the three criteria are, criteria are satisfied. But uniqueness is not satisfied, right? Because a company cannot sell the same cell line to another customer and have a unique one-to-one -one relationship, you cannot perform provenance attestation. There is only one clone of that particular cell line. Uh, same with the others. So we can go one by one with the barcoding, with indel generation alone, non-satisfy the three criteria that are essential for uh, a path. So with, with that, I'll, uh, I'll stop. Uh, again, we think that this is an exciting technology. The, 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 the provenance attestation is a, is a first step for us. We are now looking at ways to lock and unlock information and functionality using paths. So essentially you use the technology to uh, enable a secondary function, right? So it works as, as essentially as a, as, a, as a lock and you have a key to unlock some functionality that it is unique, right? So, and we're um, in parallel, we're moving into establishing uh, an entity, a company that uh, will do that um, puffing for as a service for companies. And then we'll, we'll see how things evolve. So, but uh, we, you know, we feel as a group here that there's opportunities uh, in further science and technology development, but also on the commercial side. So I'll, I'll stop here um, and I'll be happy to answer any specific questions or general questions. Thank you for your attention. Yeah, thank you so much for um, this really interesting talk and for uh, sharing the technology you developed with us. I think um, it will be also really 
important in the future, let's say you 3D print an organ or some tissue, also for the recipient to be sure that it's actually, you know, the product they paid for and not just some imitated cheap, I don't know. Exactly. You're exactly on target. We've we we recently had a discussion with uh, with a, a company that is exactly interested in doing what you mentioned, three D printing organoids, and they worry about about that uh, that aspect, the authenticity. So this is this is what the puffs are used for in the semiconductor industry. Exactly, authenticity, verifying authenticity of uh, of the chip. And we think it could be used in the same manner in in 2D and 3D cell lines. Yeah. So let's say somebody orders their organoids. How easy is it to break the codes, basically? You know, like, how is the readout of that code? And is it somehow unique for every like you know like with everything else people try to break it um imitate it and whatnot like how easy yeah. is it to replicate so we're not we're not there yet at the organoid level there are there are there are differences in how you would you would be able to to get information out from an organoid um in principle we, we've we've done the these we've answered this question for a 2d culture cell culture and in 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 our case for a two for a for just a standard cell culture it's impossible to just rebuild the path uh, so you 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 cannot um, clone it from scratch you cannot uh, build it in an organoid, we we have a couple of ideas, but again, it's uh, just something that is completely fresh. Uh, the it, it could potentially be that you have a heterogeneous mix of cells, and so you have your your organoid, and you have s cells in the organoid that carry the path. Uh, that are potentially engineered in a way that you can isolate them or lyse them, and so then you know then they leave the organoid intact, uh, but they release their contents and you grab their contents and sequence them. Um, you could also think about um, cells that are part of the organoid that secrete that information. Again, this is something that is for us in the works. It's not in yet published. Yeah, yeah. Because my question would be, where do you put those codes exactly, and how do you ensure that it's a safe place to put them where they don't screw up in the cells? But hmm. we had a guest speaker here from Church's Lab. Um, uh, he's a postdoc there. And he's working on safe harbor gene um, sequences. So he's looking for places in the genome where it's totally safe to put some information and it wouldn't lead into cancer or, you know, some other. Um, so, so yeah, I don't know. 
which we know that is a different target in the same cell. I was just wondering if you have any, I mean, result or numbers about the numbers of the effectors, possible effectors on a system for expanding the system. Yeah, so so in our particular case, I mean, we did we did uh, three cell lines for the particular paper. We all we use for all for for these cell lines. We use uh, for all of them the AAV one locus. We uh, we have a particular location in the locus, particular guide, which we a particular target in the locus that we've verified uh, in the past that does not uh, cut in any significant uh, location, significant other location that has any uh, significant off-target effects. So we were quite confident that there were no off-target effects. Now, in terms of multiplexing, um, in our case, we we are essentially we're, we're doing editing on a population of cells, right? And each cell does its own edit, so that is this is essentially it has its own uh, uh, resulting into a different uh, indel essentially. And so, so you're in one step you produce a population of cells that contain sequences of barcodes and intels um, that are different to each other. And uh, obviously, when you move up to hundreds of thousands of cells, you have then uh, cells that carry the same barcode and intel. So then, that's why we're working in the end with frequencies. We, um, so that is the baseline process. We're working on a, on an idea that has to do with uh, multiple cuts in parallel as well. So you don't have just a single cut; you're cutting in different locations. And so then you combine the information from two, uh, two NHJ events. Um, yeah. So I, and I, and I, how many uh, gRNA you use for fusing? Oh, in the in the in our case, it's just uh, it is in this paper we have a single guide RNA. In the in the in the work that we're doing now, we use a couple, so it's just two two locations. Uh, in principle, you can use more, it's, but it's not, we don't see the, I mean, we get enough diversity with one. We're using two for a different scenario that we have in our mind. So one gives you, for us, gives gives enough diversity to satisfy the, you know, the, 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 the uniqueness, essentially, right? So what you want is two cell lines that were cut to, to have a resulting frequency that is sufficiently different. Um, yeah, but you can Thank multiplex. You. you can, I mean, you can essentially the technology. If I can take it a step further, I mean, people are doing screens with CRISPR, right? So it's not. Uh, you can use a library of guides. So we 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 used a library of guides to multiplex edits. Uh, on uh, microRNA targets a few years ago. So, um, and uh, there are a number of screenings, you know, um, CRISPR-based screen papers. So I'm sure you've, you've, you've seen. Well, thank you for your question. Leo, uh, Leo, thank you so much for this 
really interesting presentation. I was curious about something sort of probably very simple, but I was curious how it is that the guide RNAs lock into specific sections of um, pathways. Is it each one is keyed to a different part of a genome or how does that work? So how do specific guide RNAs? Yeah, like there are there are several types of guide RNAs. Is that correct? Well, I mean, the there are, there are many different Cas proteins, right? So there there is there are, there are, it's it's bacterium has evolved to have kind of a different, slightly different Cas and a slightly different um, uh, guide RNA structure. So there is the most well known. Uh, CASes are SPCAS9 and, and SACAS9, and uh, they're, they're different, the proteins are different, and the corresponding guides are also slightly different. The structure of the herpin is different. Um, there is now CAS12 and CAS13, that these, these, these other proteins are targeting DNA and RNA, respectively. So this is, this is a, um, it, because of the huge diversity in, in bacterial species uh, and bacteria, bacteria, then they've evolved, and they've evolved for a particular environment, and they've evolved the, their defense mechanism, which is uh, their, their phage defense, the defense mechanism against phages, right? So it's their adaptive, it's part of their adaptive immune system. And so they've evolved these proteins and guides for their environment. So. In any case, in, in, in what we use is a single Cas, Cas9, SPCAS9, and we use a particular guide that is recognized by that particular SPCAS9. So we don't use different guides for our experiment, right? So the only thing that you change in the that you would need to change in our in your in our experiment is the target location. So uh, but essentially, we don't change that either, right? Because we have a target on AAV1, on a particular safe harbor, and we cut there. That is where we introduce that. We let the cell then fix itself and just introduces errors. And that's it. We have a different guide to cut the genome in a slightly different location, a neighboring location, to introduce the barcodes with homologous recombination. Um, Understood. Thank you so much. And, and, and I'll be very happy if you have additional questions or secondary questions, or if I did not really you know, answer your question exactly, I'd be happy to respond to emails so, um, and open the discussion. So my email is my last name at utdallas.edu. Uh, so feel free to just uh, shoot me an email. Oh hi, uh, Doctor. Yeah, thanks for for uh, sharing uh, uh, your re interesting research with us. Uh, so I have a, a a quick question the regarding the uh, the application of uh, this uh, uh, important technology uh, is as as you the analogy you made with the computer. Um, uh, encryption as well. The so uh, right now the uh, application is towards uh, cell line 
specifically, or uh, are you uh, also thinking of uh, applying to larger dom uh, areas, other uh, broader uh, scenarios? We are uh, starting with uh, cell lines. So we have results for cell lines for, for um, uh, 2D, 2D culture. So um, essentially, um, any cell line that has been engineered, uh, so you can, there, again, as I, as I mentioned, there are tens of companies right now that have um, engineered cell lines that have introduced mutations of interest to particular genes. So if you go to ATCC, you'll see that for a particular cancer, they have, uh, you know, a number of mutations that carry a particular mutation. Keras, for example, Keras mutant, uh, you know, um, um, uh, I don't know, a, a thirteen. Uh, what is it? D. There's a certain uh, Keras mutants or fifty-three mutants. Um, so these cell lines, uh, some of, some of these cell lines are quite expensive is uh, they cost uh, about ten to twenty thousand dollars so we think that it, it would be uh, beneficial for the companies to be able to um, secure them and secure have uh, be able to do transactions one one to one so basically sell a single cell line to a single customer and ensure that only this customer can and will use that particular cell line so maximize the profit. Um, but at the same time, as I mentioned before, this is, I think this, this is a, this is something that um, it, it took a little while to be picked up in the semiconductor industry, but now it has become uh, commonplace and has solved a number of problems related to security and provenance at the station. And I think with the developments in cell line engineering and 2D and 3D, uh, there'll be definitely a need for um, um, for this type of um, technology. Another issue that I have not mentioned, um, and I think it's quite important, is that uh, there is um, um, significant kind of mislabeling of cell lines. So it's very often that uh, you see basically uh, uh, labs that use cell lines that think that they're one cell line, but it's a completely different cell line. Or that it's uh, some cell line that's evolved to be different. So this, uh, our technology, this technology, or uh, these types of technologies, uh, similar to what we've built here, can help kind of um, um, improve um, the quality of research. So if, there is, if, a, if, if you thaw a cell line and you sequence a particular location and you have that unique information, you know essentially where it comes from, who built it, if he performed quality control, and so on. Thank you. So, uh, uh, if I may, another quick question regarding the, uh, I assume that the, uh, there's some uh, mathematics behind this uh, research as well. Uh, for example, the uh, RCA, like in computer science, the uh, crypto uh, encryption 
uh, I guess here you're using different bits of, uh, you know, information units bits here uh, specifically. Yeah. Any, uh, could you share a little bit? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so uh, we, we use simple metrics actually here. So we have, uh, we use a, a so-called total variation distance. Um, uh, so essentially we convert these two-dimensional uh, matrix. So we compare the we convert the two-dimensional matrix to a single vector. Um, uh, that is basically we combine the barcode and the intel, rank them with respect to the frequency, normalize that, and then use that single vector, and then start comparing vectors to each other. And so we use uh, Bray-Curtis distance, which is just a, a simple uh, statistical uh, tool, a formula, essentially, to compare vectors, the distance between two vectors, and we use total variation distance. Um, and um, these are two, 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 two approaches that we've used. Uh, the, the total variation distance, again, compares, compares everything, creates a mapping of all uh, data that you have, uh, the the Bray-Curtis compares vectors one to one, one, and so it gives you slightly different uh, perspective. Uh, but essentially, there is also that both work, you know, uh, the, the the technology in both cases in both uh, downstream quantitative tools that we use, they they, they work uh, great. Uh, we are also now uh, have started looking at uh, um, machine learning as kind of uh, looking at the two-dimensional this two-dimensional mapping with uh, machine learning tools to essentially uh, um, create extract features and then compare features. Uh, so I think there's there's lots of opportunity there in that front. Uh, it's a it's a good question. I think it's kind of underexplored at this stage. Given essentially that this is a new technology, thank you. I think this is a very interesting application of many exciting new technology from science and research. Thank you, Doctor. Thank you. Uh, I have a quick question. Uh, thank you, by the way, for a, a very uh, interesting and viable conversation. Thank you, Katrina. Do you have in mind any uh, applied application for this technology, for this innovation that you uh, lectured, whether for diagnostic purposes or therapeutic, that can actually be commercialized, or is it still pure research? Um, yeah, so we are, um, yeah, thank you for your question. The, the, um, we are we've moved in establishing a, an entity a company here in, the, in an incubator uh, that is uh, our first goals is to provide a service uh, that basically that barcoding that puffing of cell lines uh, so if a company builds a particular cell line that wants to protect from um, uncontrolled distribution, uh, we can ensure that the particular cell line um, will be um, um, will be again puffed and 
and uh, and stored in a way that they can control who uses it and they can con control their IP. Um, so that is the first immediate uh, opportunity, I think, that is, is there. There is a need for solution uh, to it. Uh, so we see that there is uh, an opportunity there. We've had a couple of companies contact us for licensing the technology. Uh, we are, again, we, we decided to pursue this ourselves, so we'll see how things evolve. Um, beyond that, as I mentioned um, earlier, uh, we think that there is, again, opportunity to use these paths as a lock and unlocking mechanism within anything that this might, um, you know, um, entails. So we are uh, we we are working again. There's there's interest by this um, company on organoids, and so they have clearly uh, they've identified some commercial opportunity and they want to secure the organoids. There's interest in uh, from the perspective of data storage, so DNA-based data storage. So you have information that is stored in the DNA and you can secure it, you can lock it, and you can ensure that only the person that has access, the key to the path, will access the information. Uh, but we're starting uh, with uh, just the, the first step for us is, is uh, puffing cell lines. And we think that, you know, considering the size of the market, uh, there is, and the developments, there's, there's tons of, there's now companies that build uh, cell lines using genome editing. There's tens of companies that build custom cell lines. And so I, I think the companies will want to protect their product in that time. So we'll see. No, wonderful. Thank you for the elaboration. You, you mentioned uh, IP, uh, obviously uh, your uh, business concept is very viable and Indeed, you should protect it. Have you filed for patents? Have you protected your intellectual property? Because once you enter into the commercialization, this is a jungle outside uh, the laboratory. Yeah, yeah, we've 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 filed through the university. It's been now you know more than a year that it's been filed, and so um, yeah. Um, I hope I hope that this is uh, finalized and that we have, you know, that we can exclusively use the technology. So, uh, awesome, of Hearthstone. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, Joyce, did you have a question? I think you didn't get a chance to speak yet. She might be away from the phone. I wanted to check in with you um, how much time you still have left for us or if because we are 12 minutes over an hour. So um, yeah, you might want. <laughs> it's probably getting late for you. So I just want to. I think this is, this is extremely fun and you've asked ex excellent questions. So I, I, you know, I think um, um, my ability to answer smart will uh, 
you know, gradually diminish. And so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I understand. So it's yeah. been a long time. I'll be very happy to continue the discussion by email. So you guys, any, if you have any question or feedback, uh, suggestions or ideas that we can pursue jointly, then I'll be more than happy to respond. Uh, again, you can get my email from Katarina or directly my last name, uh, Judy Dallas. Yeah, thank you so much for, um, for presenting and for answering all of our questions again and um i think yeah we wish you all the best for um your company i think this is really important especially in the future you know i worked for um consulted for like 3d printing of organs and things like that i think also there like just for quality control and for the safety of the patients that it's actually the right cell right cell lines <laughs> and uh, not you know a fake cell or just the wrong cells is really important because if you get an organ that's um, not the right one for your immune system and so on it's really bad <laughs> you know you okay. can so yeah thank you for doing that and uh, thanks for sharing and we wish you all the best for your startup thank you Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity again. Thank you for your time. Yeah, and thank you everyone for coming and asking questions, supporting. And uh, yeah, if you like discussions like these, follow the club. Uh, we will have this week two more talks. Uh, we will have Dr. Moseson coming tomorrow. She's a public health researcher. And she will talk about the public health how it's affected by um abortion by the new abortion laws in some states and how abortion attempts without clinical supervision how bad um it can turn out um so it's kind of the bigger picture and then also stories um and then on friday we'll have dr Araujo and talking about how in a year can tell us of the origin of warm-blooded mammals uh, will be a really interesting talk it's really interesting how the inner ear is so important for our evolutionary biology the previous guest speaker here talking about how he used ancient dna from the inner ear to trace back who were the first seafarers and now it's to see how um warm-bloodedness evolved so the inner ear is kind of very important <laughs> so keep it safe <laughs> no i'm kidding okay um okay thanks everyone have a good night good morning good day wherever you are and yeah I'll hear you all back soon thank you thank you thank you everyone thank you leo thank you all good night okay i'll close the room in three two one bye everyone